Welcome to Passionate World Talk Radio. Educate, enlighten, entertain. Welcome to Passionate World Talk Radio Network. Educate, enlighten, entertain. And this afternoon, our special guest is Dr. Mark Bolston, who has written many books, but the one we're going to discuss is Just Listen. Why hope when you why yes, why hope when you can heal? Why cope when you can heal? Thank you. Put it in a little more this way. Yeah, a little more now to that way. Just yeah, you got it. Very good. So Dr. Mark is going to discuss several things. So whip out your pencils, take out your piece of paper. If you can't find anything in Joe, cut your wrist and use the blood. I mean, people paint with the damn stuff. You might as well use it for other things. Okay, so good morning, Dr. Mark. How are you doing? Lillian, uh, you made my day. I did a TEDx talk called What Made You Smile Today? And we were starting a global movement. You can go to TEDx, What Made You Smile Today? And, and when COVID gets a little less tense, we're going to go back to it. But you made me smile today. And I think your secret is you make other people smile. Because here's one of, here's one of Lillian's secret sauces. She doesn't know it. You can trust Lillian to never hurt you. Yeah. She'll entertain, she'll delight, but you can trust her to never hurt you. And that is special because nobody trusts anyone anymore. That's true. And my job is to make you look good, to make sure the audience identifies with you, and then go and buy your book immediately before the rest of their brain kicks in. And that's pretty much how people look at it. Everything is done with your stomach. I mean, if you talk to my son, who's been having stomach issues ever since he got married, I can honestly say that some of it is real stomach problems, but I think the rest of it is his responsibility and his worries for his family. And uh, he doesn't take them very lightly, which I think is great, but I don't think it's good for his stomach. <laughs> so how old is your son? It's 48. And when did he get married? 2000, three days before 9-11. And does he have kids? Yeah, three kids. He has identical twins that are 14, and he has a little boy at seven. Okay, so here's a tip to give your son, because I don't like him having a knot in the his stomach. And if you're listening in, here's a tip. If you're all cooped up with your family, you're getting on each other's nerves, what I suggest to you is at the end of every day, you go around the family and you ask each person, what was the thing that most upset you today? Because a lot of times when we try and put positive positivity, which we need on top of pain, it's like putting lipstick on a pain. And so you ask each everybody, what is the thing that most upset you? And then there's something that I call the HADA exercise, H-A-D-A. -A. And then you say, uh, uh, say what upset you and attach the word you felt most, hurt, angry, disappointed, afraid. And they pick a word, angry or afraid. Then when they say that, you say, what was that about? What made you, what made you afraid? What made you angry? Because what happens is when you give people a word to attach to how they're feeling, and then they express it, 
and you listen to it without trying to fix it, they calm down. It we dissipates. And they what? It dissipates. It dissipates. In fact, we started a pilot program. I, I'm, uh, I do programs to help burnout and healthcare workers, uh, firefighters, first responders, because they're, they're going through a war, all of them. And we actually started one with physicians yesterday, and it went better than our wildest dreams. And if you're listening in, you can do this. You can do this with your groups. Uh, and what we simply did, and here's how you do it. I'll just give away our secret. You know, they were a little bit nervous. They were smiling like this at the beginning. It was a Zoom call. <laughs> and we basically said, these were doctors, and we basically said, uh, introduce yourself by saying your name, wh where you live right now. Uh, so you come up with everything they have in common, where you live right now, what kind of practice you have. Are you in practice individually? Are you in a hospital? Are you retired? Did you transition? Uh, what was the reason that you became a doctor? Go way back. What made you become a doctor? And then when did it start to shift into stress? And it's a stressful position. All these service providers in healthcare, veterans. And when was the point when the stress didn't go away? And it started to uh, be something that was pushing at you. And, and it was called a burnout group. And then we say, what does burnout mean? And what made you think that you had it? And, and I'll tell you, Lillian, it hit me in the chest. Now, I'm retired. Uh, I write books and I go, you know, speak around the world. I spoke in Moscow last year with a Nobel Prize winner named Daniel Kahneman. He wrote Thinking Fast and Slow. But, and my book, Just Listen, behind me is about how do you cause people to feel felt, not just understood, but felt. And then when they got into what their definitions of burnout, I, I got emotional. It's a good thing they couldn't see me because I was at a distance. And they said, uh, when you're afraid to see patients because you have nothing to give them from inside yourself. When you just, when you, when you check boxes and, and inside you feel this moral injury, this is not why I became a doctor. And, and, a number of them said the same thing. They said, I knew I was burnt out when I was so trying to make it through each day and the 25 patients I needed to see that I didn't have the luxury of caring. When it my husband was dying, uh, my doctor kept on coming back and saying, I can save him. And I said, for what? For him to go through this all over again? I said, no, let him die in peace. And he says, that's what I do. I save lives. And he was very unhappy that I would not allow him to save my husband again. And I think that's the biggest number one thing that doctors truly believe. They're here to save lives. And when they're reduced to a point where they can no longer save them, or what they're doing in California, where they make a determination who's going to live and who's going to die. That's when they feel they're most powerless. And that's when they find themselves burned out because they're incapable of helping those that they swore an oath to save. You're so right. We've been studying burnout and three elements that we discovered that draw people to become doctors 
And what happens is when they start to get squelched, they start to burn out, is they, they're drawn to it because there's a belief they'll have autonomy initially. You know, I'll be seeing patients. Yeah, we'll be keeping records, but I'm not there to keep records. I have to, but I'm there to help patients one patient at a time. They can develop a mastery of skills, and they often have an interest in science, and, they, and, and they're very curious about that. And they have this incredible purpose, and their purpose in life is, is to save lives and to alleviate pain. And then what happens is their autonomy is being taken away because they can no longer survive in their practices. And then they're scooped up by big uh, uh, hospitals where people are on top of them to see more and more patients per day. Uh, yes, I think the electronic record keeping is really helpful. I like seeing my chart. I like seeing the results of my visit. I think there, uh, there's a lot of improvement, but having to enter all that data in, uh, you know, takes you away from really being able to have a conversation with your patient because you're too busy entering data. And so they feel uh, stressed by that. Their sense of mastery, their What's happening is as, as things become more and more specialized, they get more and more focused on their specialty area and, and they still cooperate in the service of patients, but, uh, but their sense of mastery is often a feeling of, boy, this is something that the patient's suffering from and uh, you know, I don't know what to do, so they refer out. And, and then their sense of purpose Something that I've heard that really is painful is a number of them, especially since they're still struggling in their 60s, they've made an okay living. Yeah, compared to the rest of the world, you know, they, they've made an okay living. But a number of them have said, and they say, and, and we enable them to speak from their heart, a number of them have said, I think I've been on an idealistic fool's errand. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they get that from society and they get it from our work culture. And the more they interact with the people with whom they need to take care of, the more they get angry because they really have less and less that they can do for these patients. So it's a bad, bad cycle. It's interesting you bring that up because uh, uh, I like to come up with acronyms, you know, so people can uh, so people can remember them. And so one of the things we talked about in the burnout group is I said, how many of you are experiencing fat? And I said, no, it's not about your diet. Fat stands for fear, anger, trapped fear, anger, trapped. And the fear is, I don't know how much longer I can keep doing this. You have a lot of anger, but one of the things that physicians and especially nurses have trouble with is really admitting how angry they are. I mean, it, it's, you know, you're a caregiver and being angry is, and it's certainly not anything that you take out on your patients, uh, but you, uh, you may feel it towards the patients who are manipulating you to get more drugs and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, or the ones who, because they couldn't get those opiates out of you, give you a terrible Yelp review. And, and healthcare workers have a lot of trouble with being angry. And then what happens is they feel trapped. And so as they began to share those things, 
especially the anger that they felt a little bit ashamed of. You know, I'm, I'm a doctor, I'm a nurse, I'm not supposed to be angry, I'm supposed to be caring. They felt such relief. I mean, we've been getting emails today that, uh, and the people who aren't, we, we hoped it went okay, but a number of them have said, you know, you are really onto something. You know, we felt so relieved. Well, we do not really give much respect to the healthcare industry. Yes, it's true. Doctors and surgeons make a lot of money. Well, I'm dating one now, and my and this particular surgeon, which is an orthopedic surgeon, spends ten plus hours every day with his patients. Folks, that's half a day. And then you have to wonder if he has a, if he had a family before he met me, or he's raising a son. And I happen to know he does have a son. That's I was a single parent. I know how difficult that is to work long hours and then have to come home and take care of your child and make sure you meet their needs. You know, it's interesting you bring that up, Lillian, because uh, I have three grown children and we are blessed and fortunate that they live uh, in the same city. And we're furthermore blessed, uh, I don't get any credit for this, is they all get along, have each other's backs, and they've and I now have a two-year-old grandson and a six-month-old granddaughter. And all these cliches about being a grandparent are true. And, and, and I'll tell you, I'm discovering being present with my grandchildren in ways I weren't, I, because I was a busy doctor, you know, six days yeah. a week. The nickname of my kids for me was, uh, hi, kids, bye, kids, love you, kids. Yeah, that, that's pretty much what it is. And uh, I think my son used to say, I have my mom for 48 hours, Saturday and Sunday. So I have to plan for every minute to make sure nothing is wasted. Mm -hmm. This is a, you know, a young kid, six, seven, eight years old, who's telling his friends, yeah, well, I don't see much of my mom, but for the time she's with me, it's just awesome. So I look forward to the weekends. And you don't plan life like that, but it happens like that. I have a friend who's a doctor in Boston, and she was supposed to go home, but they kept her because she was a good doctor. She lived in a hotel for something like seven, eight months. And uh, she said she dreaded going to work after a while because she really couldn't face going in and drawing the cloth over the people's faces, watching them die, and then be stacked on those refrigerated cars, she said it reminded her of the Holocaust. Yeah, it's in, you know, it's interesting you say that, because in, in this book, Why Cope When You Can Heal, we, we talk, uh, what we talk about is something called surgical empathy, and surgical empathy is an approach that I develop as a suicide prevention boots on the ground, a psychiatrist. And for 25 years, none of my patients died by suicide. And, and I was really fortunate, Lillian, because after I uh, trained, about a week before I finished training as a psychiatrist, a fellowship I was going to go in got canceled. So I shrugged my shoulder and I said, well, I'll just go out. And one of my early mentors was the, probably one of the top three pioneers in the study of suicide prevention, a fellow named Dr. Ed Schneidman. He co-founded the Suicide Prevention Centers in Washington, Los Angeles, 
and the American Association of uh, uh, Suicidology, and he would refer me all these suicidal patients. And I was really fortunate because since I didn't work for an institution, I, as I was with those patients, I learned to listen into their eyes, not just look into their eyes, listen into their eyes, and their eyes were screaming out at me, you're checking boxes and I'm running out of time. And many of them were multiple attempters. So I had the choice to check the boxes, you know, to protect myself, but it was a barrier between them and me, or just keep listening into their eyes uh, and take it wherever it wanted to take me. And Dr. Schneidman, he had this great approach with people that I carried forward. And you can do this with the people in your family or people you're worried about, what he would say, and that your tone has to be that you want to hear. You can't just be checking boxes. What he would say is, uh, what hurts? Where does it hurt? How much does it hurt at its worst? How alone do you feel when it's hurting like that? Take me to the last time you felt that. And of course, you know, you wait for them to answer. You know, you don't just... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, the, and, and here's what I discovered when I would do that with people is when they would... St- uh, and, and they look at you like, this is strange, you know, you're, you're supposed to be checking boxes. But as I said, they were screaming out at me with their eyes, I'm running out of time and you're checking boxes. And I was in a position where, you know, I could throw away the boxes. Yes, I'd, I'd fit in the, the, uh, the questions, uh, you know, do you think you might be depressed? Do you think you might be anxious? But I wasn't putting them into uh, a category. Uh, I felt uh, they felt like a person, uh, and I was and I was surgically going into the dark night of the soul. And here's what happens: is when they tell you the final question. When I said, "Take me there," when they would say, if it was a teenager, young adult, and they, and, and and of course, I'd lead them there with the other questions. And I might even prompt it. I'd say, you know, you know, people like you, the there is 2.30 in the morning, maybe three. Uh, and so they'll bring up a time. We'd say, okay, it was two nights ago, uh, 2.30. Yeah, what happened at 2.30 two nights ago? I was walking around my room. I couldn't get back to sleep. Uh, then what happened? I, I, I just couldn't take it. Uh, I didn't know whether to put my fist through the wall or my head through the wall. You know, and, and then I'd empathize. I'd go, wow, keep, keep talking. Because obviously they didn't do either. Uh, and I said, then what happened? Well, I kept wandering around, you know, looking for my parents' outdated sleeping medicine. I couldn't find it. And, and then I, I said, what time was that? They said, well, that was about five. And I said, then what happened? And they said, I really thought I was going to just go out of my mind. And then the sun rose. So I felt a little bit better. But I can tell you, Lillian, as they're sharing it so vividly that I could see it, they re-experienced it, but they weren't alone. And I could weave in there, you know, at its worst, uh, how much did that hurt? When you got angry, how angry did you get? When you felt like putting your fist through the wall, how uh, 
how upset were you? And as they begin to express it, they begin to cry because they're feeling less alone there. And, and, and to me, that crying from the dark night of the soul in the hopelessness they feel is like the pus of hopelessness. And when you go in there and you help them feel felt, and my book, Just Listen, is about how do you cause people to feel felt, they start to cry with relief. And so when I coach parents how to do this or counselors how to do this, I can say, no, you're not making them cry. You're letting them cry. And you're allowing them to cry in terms of healing, not as they're being punished, not as if they're ashamed, not if, as if they're doing it in anger. And that's what our society always seems to miss out on is that when you're seeing the screaming eyes, they're showing you their tattered soul and they want to make it whole for them to move forward. Yeah. I didn't know if I was going to bring this up, but can I share a backstory? Certainly. Because, because people will say, where'd you learn this in training? Uh, I think one of my greatest personal accomplishments, you know, other than the family and, you know, we've been married many years is I dropped out of medical school twice and finished. And I think I had untreated depression. And the first time I dropped out, I went and worked in blue collar jobs, which I still miss because they were so simple. Go to work, come home, watch TV. It was so simple. And my mind kind of came back. And then I went back to med school. And then after three months, it started to leave me again. And so I met with the head of the school or the head of the school who's about fundraising. The dean of the school met with me. Don't really remember the meeting. And then I get a call from the dean of students who's about students. And he called me and he said, Mark, uh, you better come in here. I got a letter from the, the dean of the school. And Lillian, I think I was at a low point because I had, you know, at my age, it's not unusual, especially it's not unusual for males that my whole worth was what I could do. And I think I was unable to do. So my whole worth was pretty worthless. So I go in there and he says, read this letter. And the letter was from the dean of the school. And it said, I've met with Mr. Goulston. I wasn't a doctor yet. Uh, we talked about an alternate profession. I'm advising the promotions committee that he be asked to withdraw. So I was passing everything so they couldn't kick me up. And then I said to uh, Dean McNary, Bill McNary, the Dean of Students, I said, what does this mean? And he said, you've been kicked out. And I was at a low point, And I remember when he said that, it's as if I had a gunshot wound to the gut. And I know what that feels like because I had a perforated colon about 15 years ago. I almost died from it. I went, oh. Yeah, it, it, the pain is pretty <laughs> fierce. Yeah, and then what happened is I... Uh, I thought I was bleeding from my eyes. So I'm not, this is not a religious resurrection thing. Yeah, I, I understand. I understand and, what you're and, saying. And so I'm, I'm looking at my fingers like this because I think I'm bleeding and they're tears. And uh, and imagine hearing this when you, when you believe you're worth nothing because you can't do anything. Yeah, now who is the fool there? That, that's right. But I got to tell you what he told me because I paid it because I think what helped me be successful as a suicide interventionist was I just paid forward what he did next. 
So I'm there all raw. And he said, Mark, you didn't screw up because you passed everything, but you are screwed up. But if you get unscrewed up, I think the school would be uh, glad they gave you a second chance. So suddenly I'm crying. I mean, he's pummeling me with compassion. And then he couldn't leave well enough alone. And he said, even if you don't get unscrewed up, even if you don't become a doctor, even if you don't do anything the rest of your life, I'd be proud to know you. Because you have a streak of goodness in you that we should grade in medical school, but we don't get around to it. And you have no idea how much the world needs that goodness. And you're not going to know how much they need that goodness till you're 35. But you have to make it till you're 35. And then he said, you deserve to be on this planet and you're going to let me help you. Lillian, I'm telling you, if he had said, uh, uh, you know, if I if I can help you, give me a call. I think I Here, may have- Here's my card. I'm free between two and six. Yeah. yeah. If he had said that, I think I would have gone back to the apartment I was living in and I don't think I would be here today. But he said, you're going to let me help you. So he arranged an appeal and he took on the whole medical school and stood up for me and said, uh, we're giving him a second chance. And there was something about, uh, and this is what I recreated, I believe, with my suicidal patients. When you he saw goodness in me, he saw value in me. He saw a future for me. And he went to bat for me against the establishment. So all of that together clicked something in me, and then I paid it forward for 30 years. I can understand that. I remember a long time ago, I guess I was 22. No, let's see. I'd been when I was 20. So I was 23 or 24. And I had a couple of six packs because I was down in Texas. And that's what you did. You drank beer, a lot of it. And I remember drinking two or three cans and keeping looking and thinking, well, you know, I could just go all the way and die from alcohol poisoning. And then I thought about how hard I fought to make it through high school and how hard I fought to get that money to go to college. And then I have a child that's mm. respo I'm responsible for. And I just kind of put all the beer out in the porch knowing it would be gone real, real fast. And I went on with my life. But I think that not everyone has that internal, I guess, discipline to really sort of, well, what I say, slap yourself back into reality type thing. And I have found that when I really hurt, I go and look in the mirror. And I look beyond the reflection in the mirror and I ask myself, okay, do we move forward or we give up? Now, remember, girl, we've been at it for a long time. And once you're gone, you're gone. You can't come back. So be really careful what you wish for. Let me ask you, Lillian, yes. if, you, if you didn't have a child, do you think... Uh it could have gone the other way. It could have. Yeah. But girls back in the fifties and sixties were the way they used to train squires to become knights in the middle ages. We were trained to become mothers and we were taught that life is precious. And for those few ladies who had children, it was your job to make sure 
that you gave them everything you had plus an extra 10%. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I told my son, I said, you know, I'm a little bit ashamed of myself. I used you as an excuse. But I also got strength from you because I knew I had to learn how to do this stuff. But I used you as a shield for many years. He says, well, you're not doing that anymore. If you get any more outspoken, we'll be thrown in jail, Mom. So here, what's your son's first name? Ben. Ben. So you're going to give him this quote. I collect quotes. And this uh, this one came from a, a, a doctor named Milton uh, Greenblatt. He was, uh, I think, the head of the L.A. medical uh, mental health, uh, county mental health thing. It's one of my favorite quotes, and you're going to tell this to him. Could say, I heard this crazy quote, and then you're going to ask him where he thinks you are. First, we are children to our parents. Then we are parents to our children. Then we are parents to our parents. Then we are children to our children. Yes. As you grow older. Absolutely. Absolutely. I told him, I said, you know, I have plans to live to 100. Whatever, Mom. And my grandson's real excited. He's, oh, boy, you're going to see me get married. You're going to see me as a man. And, oh, boy, oh, boy. You know, he was really stoked. But my son, all he said was whatever. And I said, don't worry, Penn. I am not going to lean on you if I don't have to. It's okay. I understand it. I mean, I was brought up to take care of my parents. It was not expected. It was demanded. I said, but I'm not going to put that demand on you because quite frankly, I don't want you to have to take care of me. That's not your job. You know, Lily, and I have this real hang up and my hang up is, and I think a lot of healthcare providers have this. I probably would have had it even if I wasn't a doctor. I can't stand being a burden to anyone. Exactly. Exactly. I, I even told my wife, I said, I've got the Tempur-Pedic pillow picked out so that when it looks like I'm going to be a burden, that's the one I'm going to put over my head. <laughs> well, I told my son, this is how I look at it. So I said, this is how we can do it. You can let me walk into the forest and let me die in peace and quiet. Or I want a New Orleans band with all the trimmings, professional mourners and everything when I die total shock. He says, how can you treat this like that? And I said, but I almost died twice. There's nothing really left here to bother me. I mean, I remember talking to my doctor and said, is there something wrong with me? I said, I think the pandemic is tragic. It reminds me of the flu epidemic and the bubonic plague. I said, but I'm not scared. And he said, that's because you already have experienced life and you know and he says, everybody else, is, he's a geriatric doctor. And he says, I find that most of my patients to them is just one more thing that they take instead. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of people here at this place where I live, they're survivors of Auschwitz. They're survivors of World War II. They ate tulips when they were kids. Many of them hid. And so to this pandemic, on a scale to one to one, it's relative. And therefore they're not afraid. And therefore I am not afraid. And my son, who's like I said, 48, is like, mom, people are dying. And I said, yes, people are dying. That's how the earth prunes itself.
You know, I feel the same way. I, I, I mean, you know, the, the only thing I'm concerned about is, um, you know, I want to make sure that I have stuff in order so that if I die or when I die, it's not really a, uh, it's an, here's an interesting quote. Uh, one of my mentors, Dr. Schneidman, uh, he was a suicide specialist, uh, and he had a mentor named Henry A. Murray, who was, a, a, you know, this Harvard Brahmin who actually invented something called the TAT test, which is now a historic psychological thing where, uh, and the test was you'd see pictures and you would talk about what they reminded you of. And, uh, and, and Dr. Schneidman used to say that, uh, uh, Dr. Murray used to say, here is a definition of a perfect death. He said, a perfect death is dying so as to be as little a pain in the rear to your family as possible. <laughs> I like that. I like that. And, and yet that's true. I mean, I tell, I think one of the big, biggest things with this pandemic is has shown a large crack in the fabric of the family where people are afraid to talk about death. Therefore they haven't made their final wishes known they don't have a living will. They don't have their own state in order. And yet my husband and I did that, I think, when we were in our 40s, 30s, because mm -hmm. it was important for us to plan for the end because we both know sooner or later we're going to end up in the ground anyway. So we might as well not have not us eat dirt, but the dirt eat us. And I find, too, that the generation in which my son is in and all the subsequent generations, they are afraid of the word death. They are absolutely petrified by it. They won't discuss it. They don't discuss it with their children. They avoid it. And the problem is, folks, you're born and you die. That is our life cycle. And somewhere in between, you get your own personality. You know, I wonder how much of it, is, I, I agree with you, they're afraid of death, but <clears throat> And my grown children, it's a, it would be a very awkward thing. <clears throat> but I think, you know, one of the things they're really afraid of is if their mom or I die, especially their mom, because, you know, she's been, you know, she's, she, she gets the lion's share of credit of being focused on the details. And I think part of what it is, is even though, you know, if you have a decent family, even though kids may push back and they, uh, you know, can be very snobby about the way they, uh, you know, they, they treat us we represent this center of stability in them. And the thought that that would be taken away, uh, many of them feel that they would, you know, cave in, that they would lose their bearings. And, and, and I'm here to say, if you're a child, an adult child, and you feel that way, uh, everyone feels that way, but nearly everyone gets through it. And, and you do get over it. I heard an amazing quote that, that tears are the vehicle that God gives us when someone uh, is gone from our life uh, and the tears transport them to our heart where they live forever. And it's true. And I'll tell you why, folks. When my husband passed a year and a half ago, my grandson was six and he went hysterical when his grandfather died. Okay. And he had trouble sleeping and everything else. His behavior didn't change all that much, but he was off. So I gave him a shirt that his grandfather used to wear. 
And I said, this is a summer shirt. When you need a flannel shirt, let me know. I have plenty of his flannel shirts. I said, when you feel sad and start crying, put the shirt on and hug it around you. Mm. And it will make you feel better. And then kind of looked at me and I said, hey, it's cheaper than a shrink. So, um, but it did the trick. And whenever Leo, who's a young man in question, feels blue and he's still mourning his grandfather a year and a half later, he puts the shirt on and he says, I can still smell grandpa's aftershave. And I said, well, Old Spice is hard to eradicate. So, but it makes him happy and it gives him a feeling that his grandfather is right there. On the other hand, his dad, I know his morning is dad, his father, but he'll look at me and he says, don't you go and die. I said, I have no plans of doing that for a while. He says, I mean it. And I think you're right. Uh, I know I, I couldn't understand this that, then, but I sort of understand it now. When my parents died, my brother said to me, I'm an orphan. I said, you're not an orphan. You're an adult with no parent. People die. Get over it. Deal with it. And he just gave me this look. And I'm thinking to myself, orphan? Really? At 50 what? So I think it's a whole psychological play here that kids don't really, they have a Peter Pan outlook on the fact that parents have a set role within their lives and that as an adult, for whatever the reason, they're even more attached with that invisible line, that invisible emotional thread than they are when they're younger. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, you just triggered something. I want to run it by you because I love our conversation and how we're brainstorming. So I've never thought this before. I, I wonder if what happens and why adult children, Gen Xs, uh, uh, have this fear of their parents dying is because a lot of Gen X, Y, and Gen Z, they run away from hurt and fear into activity. They oh, just, yeah. They just run towards it. And that's why that's why they're so frenetic and smiling. Oh, life is great. Oh, wonderful. And I'm not taking that away. And I think it's good to have an exciting life. But I think, you know, what I suggest to Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z is I'll ask a question. Uh, how 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 do you tell the difference between whether you're running away from something into activity or you're expressing who you are in the activity? And it's a good question to contemplate. And I think many of them are saying that, well, you know, you know, mom, dad, if you die, um, it's going to be tough to run away from how much that hurts and how afraid I'll be. And my MO has been to run away from the hurt and fear forever. So I don't know how I'm going to handle it. And again, if you're listening in and if any of this is true, you will handle it. Yeah, it, you'd be surprised. I think it also runs true with after my husband passed, I was talking to my doctor because we have that kind of connection. And he told me, he said, if something happens to my wife, I wouldn't be able to continue. And I was shocked. I was thinking, why is that? Are you so identified with her that to live by yourself, meaning spiritually or in faith or however you want to put it, is so much of um, 
baggage for you that she is your emotional support inside of you that without her physical presence you'll die and certainly history has pointed that out to be true and i'm thinking that's so sad that you're so bound to somebody else that if something happens to that person that determines whether you live or die well i'll tell you lillian because you're a woman and i'm a man but i can understand that i mean i truly hope that i die before my wife uh, and part of that is because a lot of men live and their identity is based on activity and i used to do house calls to dying patients so i wasn't just a suicide specialist but I would do house calls to dying patients and a number of them, the men, I would try to help them make peace with their lives because a number of them felt that they blew it, even though they were very successful. I remember I was seeing one person, he was just this uh, beloved figure in the world. Everybody loved this person, but he had multiple marriages and whatnot. And, you know, and, and kids were a little bit messed up and stuff like that. And at the end, I said to him, and people liked that I was sort of a straight shooter. And I said to him, you know, you look awful. Uh, you look awful. And I don't think it's because you're dying, because you've been dying as long as I've known you. What's going on? <laughs> and, and no one would talk to him because he was this big icon. And But he liked that I was just the wreck because everyone was just so afraid to out say anything. And he looked at me and he said, um, I don't think I've ever done anything important in life. I said, what? You have a hospital named after you. You created something that has thousands of jobs. You're beloved by so many fans. And then he looked at me and he was really well known for his wry sense of humor. And he looked at me and he probably lost 30 pounds by then. And he looked at me and he said, don't con a con man, especially when he's dying. I've got, yeah. all, I've got all the love that money can buy. And that's all it is. And I'm not close to anyone. Everybody thinks they're close to me, but I'm really not close to anyone. And so maybe, just maybe, I blew it because everything I thought was important is unimportant. And everything I thought was unimportant is important. And I've kind of run out of time and I've kind of run out of luck. I mean, you know, you hear that kind of stuff, Lillian. It's a pretty big lesson about life. It's... It's, I tell people this, and I especially tell my grandchildren, because they're, they're, all three of them have been told by their mother that they're the total package. And I said, one of the things about being me is that my parents didn't have any expectations for me to be successful in the world. They just prayed I would make it through college and not get pregnant before I graduated. That's all they wanted. And guess what? I surpassed them all. And you know why I'm so successful? Because nobody made demands on me and expected me to be a superstar. And here I am, a superstar, and nobody expected me to be here. So they couldn't take and pile up their expectations for me to feel the weight or disappointment because I didn't live up to their demands and expectations. And that's what you should be striving for. Not the total package of brains, beauty, and 
whatever, having a good body or being a cheerleader. That's not what's important in the wide world. I said, nobody's going to care a rat's ass about it, but they will care of how you're going to conduct yourself with what the lessons you have learned to get you to where you are. So don't let anybody make demands and expectations on you because you'll always fail. The only person you want to make expectations and demands are, are from yourself. You know, it's interesting. I'm going to give your <clears throat> listeners and you this exercise that I, that people find helpful. Imagine, and this doesn't apply to you, but it does apply to a lot of your listeners. Imagine your personality is a circle and in the circle are the parts of your personality that are trying to prove, show, hide, or please. The parts of your personality that are trying to prove something, show something, hide something, or please someone. And then what I suggest to people is go on a long walk with your mask on and imagine eliminating all those parts of your personality and what's left. And a number of people will say, nothing's left. All I am is someone trying to prove, show, hide, or please. And, and people sometimes get nervous. And I say, well, when you do that, you don't belong to yourself. You are leased out to the world. And if you do this and just allow those things to go away, some people will discover a calling that has been calling out to them for who they are and the life they were meant to live but they couldn't hear it because they were so busy proving, hiding, showing, or pleasing. Yeah. Yeah. And lucky me, I didn't have any of that. I know. You have to do. And folks, I got to tell you, you're not doing your children any good, seriously, by telling them, I see you as a future president of the United States. That's nice, but that's not them. That's you inserting yourself in them. Here, here is some advice that I give to parents to give their kids, especially in COVID. <clears throat> and there's something that I talk about called uh, assertive humility. And this works well in business and families. And, and it's like bearing your neck, but you're not weak. And so you say to your kids, I need your help with something but you have to say it in the right way. I need your help with something. And they're gonna say, what, what? Uh, my role as your parent, as your mom or your dad, is that when you reach age 18, you're able to go into the world uh, excited instead of bored, passionate instead of blah, able to take rejection instead of being overly thin-skinned, uh, able to focus instead of being scattered, able to follow through instead of not being able to follow through. And part of my role is to do everything I can and your mom or dad can to make sure that that's who you are at age 18. And if we don't do that, I will have failed as your dad or your mom. And some of those things uh, are not going to be comfortable conversations and they're not going to be ones that either of us like having, but we need to have them. And I need your help because I do think the world of who you are and how you can become 
but that's what I need you to be at age 18. It's called tough love. I told my son, if you wind up working in McDonald's and Kentucky Fried Chicken, you're not disappointing me. You're selling yourself short. And you're taking a job where somebody else, that's all they can ever live to hope to get to support their family. You know, I said, you, you know. You just said something. Uh, here, here's another. I hope it's okay that I'm throwing these tips out. and I hope Oh, somebody... absolutely. Please do. So, um Something else that I think is a great thing to say to your kids when they when they act up, when they make a bad decision, you, you say, you know, do you think I'm disappointed in you? And the kids will say, yes. You can say, no, 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 no. I'm not disappointed in you. I'm disappointed for you. You know, I love you. So I'm not disappointed in you. I'm disappointed for you. Because if you do those things or make those kind of decisions, uh, life is not going to treat you that well. Life is not going to put up with it. And you might get angry or whatever. So when you do those things, I'm disappointed for you because if you don't learn from them, life is going to be harder. And one of the most elo eloquent things I ever heard, I heard from a, <clears throat> a religious friend of mine, and when his kids act up, and he has good kids, they knew they were in trouble, so he didn't need to really shame them. And what he would say to them is, uh, uh, what you just did is not who I believe you to be or who I think you believe yourself to be. And I thought, what a what an eloquent way uh, to, you know, be, because the kid knows they screwed up, but you're treating them in a way that you know, instead of they're being worried, what's the punishment? What you're doing is you're you're helping them to feel productive shame. I think yes. shame can be productive because it can cause you to want to be a better person. Absolutely. I mean, I told my son, I said, I've given you all the tools, my knowledge, experience, wisdom to help you on your journey. However, like me, if you feel that that doesn't quite help you, you are free to reinvent yourself all over again and take the bits and pieces you believe that will be helpful to you to move forward with your life. And one final thought, Ben. I'll always love you no matter what, even if you go out and kill somebody. You know, I'll still love you. I may not like what you did. I certainly would not approve. But I'll always love you and I'll always be there for you. And in knowing this, you have to be the recipient of your own love to make yourself stronger and a better and wiser person as well. He turned out pretty good from a single parent. I mean, my ex-brother told me that my son at the age of nine would join a gang. And by the time he was 12, he would be dead. That was my ex-brother's assessment of my parenting skills. You know, I know this is too intimate for someone like you, Lillian, but you're Ben's hero. And yeah. uh, and um, and that's an awkward conversation, but it's something. I that never thought did. of it that way, but I suspect yeah. you're right. Yeah, you're his hero because you, you know, you're like a Timex watch. You take a licking and you keep on ticking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it, how else to do it 
-hmm. and I don't know how to tell people how else they should do it. And you're not looking at somebody who always had 100% confidence and this and that. You know, I barely made it through high school because I wasn't high school material. I just sort of fell in through the cracks. But I think what it is, and folks don't laugh, I have this little inner voice. I've had it since I was a child. My inner voice, his name is Father Thomas. Thomas was a doubter, but the Lord still loved him. And I call my little inner voice Father Thomas. And Father Thomas has had many a conversation with me about letting me know whether I'm doing the right or wrong thing. So if you don't have an inner voice, I suggest you develop one because it will keep you humble and in tune to what you really, truly should be doing with your life. And on no. that note, Yep. On, go, on that note, to be to be continued at another to time. To be continued. Absolutely. We're going to wrap up today's session with Dr. Mark Goulston. Hold up your book, Mark. Go out and buy the book. We all know why cope when you can heal the pandemic is ripping you apart. Admit it and then do something about it. People, there used to be a saying, a coward dies a thousand deaths. A hero only one. And if you have to figure that out, go look it up on Google. It will explain it to you. We want to thank Dr. Mark from coming on and discussing some deep things that need to be said. You always get the truth around here, whether you want to hear it or not. You can hear this all over again at youtube.com, PWR Talk, PWR Network. And you can hear it on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook, of course, and YouTube. And also on the website. And before you go away and stray, I just had to get this in. It's from Anatole, France, 1894. Ignorance is the necessary condition of life itself. If we knew everything, we could not endure existence for a single hour. Thank you all very much for listening. Please stay tuned. Stay safe. Keep wearing those masks. Distance yourself. You'll be curious to know that with the mask, the flu is not as bad this year. Think about that. Thank you all very much for listening. Please join us again. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Passionate Oral Talk Radio. You can listen to this program all over again by going over to https colon forward slash forward slash Passionate World Talk radio.com you can also hear it on spotify spreaker amazon a-l-e-x-a amfm247.com every tuesday evening between 8 and 9 p.m youtube facebook facebook live linkedin and all the other podcast directories one can find on the internet.